Welcome to the Worldwide Bible Study. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller here in Austin, Texas, and we're studying the life of Jacob together with Martin Luther. He's really our teacher, so let's get into it. We are in uh, Genesis chapter 28, and the Lord has given us, has, has given all these great promises to Jacob. Uh, we remember that Luther's been through the promise. He gave the he gave the earthly promise of the family and of the of the land. And all of this was for the spiritual promise of the seed, the Messiah. And then he's back to the family and land promise. So that's oh, I don't know. You know, these Bible scholars love to talk about the chiasm. You know, the the chiasm comes from that from the Greek word uh, chi, which so you have this sort of structure. So you have land, fam, seed, family, land. And you see in that structure, uh, this chiastic structure, you see the key and the most important part. It's a, it's a way of, of verbally highlighting that thing, which is important. And so, so we have that here in this promise, and uh, Luther has done this great um, work that to show how this is law and gospel beautifully, and how we have the word, and then we have works, and how we give precedent to the to the word, and and this is where we finished uh, right here last week, right down here. But I want to I want to just get a running start at this, so. Uh, so the word has to proceed. The word and promise of God who blesses promises, receives us into his grace and forgives sins. This must surely proceed. And when Luther says proceed there, he means, well, it has to come first because we, we don't have anything apart from this word, from the gospel, from the speaking of God, but that it also, it has precedence in that it's the most important thing. Your sins are forgiven. That's the that's the first thing that the Lord says to us. I'm your God. Don't fear the devil. I'm with you. I'll protect you. All these promises. I will not forsake you. But after the forgiveness of sins, this follows. Take up your bed and go home. So Luther is riffing on the this beautiful uh, account where Jesus heals the paralyzed man. But before he tells him to stand up and go home, he says, son, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. <laughs> so the Lord gives us a heart to take. And then he lets that heart do its stuff. This proceeds, take heart, my son. Acknowledge me as propitious. We need to make sure we know that word, propitiation. That means the, the sacrifice that takes away anger, that all our sins are on Christ instead of on us. It's the, it's the, the um, it comes from the Old Testament day of atonement, uh, temple stuff. Remember how Oh, I don't want to get too, I, I'm, I'm supposed to be going fast through this, but remember how in the Holy of Holies, you had the Ark of the Covenant, which had the angels there over, uh, and then on the Day of Atonement, and what's in the, and what's in the Ark of the Covenant is the Ten Commandments, boom, that, that testify against you, that, that show your own guilt, et cetera, et cetera. But what happens on the Day of Atonement? is that the priest comes in and he puts the blood of the sacrifice on that mercy seat so that the blood covers over the accusations that stood against us. 
so that the um i bet i can make it like this oh yeah that's better so that the blood covers over so that now all the guilt that should come to us from the preaching of the ten commandments is appeased that that word so the word in hebrew for for the mercy seat for that for the lid that sits there is is brought into uh is brought into greek as hilasterion which is the propitiation that mercy seat is the propitiation it's the same it's the same thing so jesus is propitious that means he he is the sacrifice that forgives sins the the really nice thing about this word propitiation is that it you know we is it connects the forgiveness of sins with the death of jesus so we we can in our in our theological imagining we can sort of separate the two things we can say well okay here's the here's the death of jesus back here here's his bleeding and dying on the cross there's where the forgiveness of sins is one and here we are being baptized or receiving the lord's supper and and our sins are being forgiven there's the gospel that's being preached to us and it's going into our ears and and we're and our sins are forgiven and so we think ah here's atonement and here's justification but now the the, the it's this propitiation is going to just make sure that we have these two things bound up together it's helpful by the way for us to have this these two as distinct but not separate we never want to have them separate and so that word propitiation pulls them all together beautifully uh, acknowledge me as propitious placated being favorable absolving you first first receive my blessing in order that you may be freed from sin and death afterward when you have been healed and look at how luther understands forgiveness as healing Ugh. take up your bed walk teach do works etc thus after jacob had first been strengthened in faith because of grace and the blessing he walks works suffers as is stated in what follows he awoke from his sleep etc so just like the paralyzed man is forgiven and then stands up so jacob is receives the promise and then stands up and is going to go about his work so far then we have heard this glorious promise given to the patriarch Jacob, not only concerning the blessing of his descendants and concerning Christ, but also concerning the present guidance and protection in exile. That's the, I will be with you right here. Behold, verse 15, Genesis 20, 15. Behold, I will be with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. So that the Lord is going to add this promise for Jacob, not just in the woo, but also in the right now. Present guidance, protection, and exile, and where he may, he may be sure of life, food, of his return, victory over all future sufferings and tribulations. For below, we shall see that he was afflicted with great evils before these things were fulfilled. Well, at some point, we think to ourselves, boy, oh boy. How much can Jacob endure? I mean, here he is, 77 years old. He he was supposed to 
the older was supposed to serve the younger. That's never been seen. He's been given the promise both by his brother sold it to him and then his father blessed him. But now he's in exile. He's a king without a throne. He's sleeping on a rock. And there's more to come, 20 more years until this promise is kept. 20 more years. Yet through all those kinds of death and countless misfortunes, he must be brought back and remain blessed and the heir of the descendants of the future inheritance. Therefore, these examples are especially memorable. This is the beautiful text here that we were thinking about this one. Uh, because they not only show that God spoke with the fathers, but also testified that when God speaks, he does not lie. I remember reading somewhere an article. Uh, it was kind of nicely done. And it wasn't, a. it was a guy, I wish I, I need to go look for this. If someone is, if you're sitting there and thinking, I got to, I want to look on the internet and find something to distract me because I only need half my brain to listen to the Bible study. You can look for this. There's a, some article that's comparing Luther to the Calvinist, to the Reformed tradition. And they say um, that the basic difference is that Calvin says God is sovereign. Luther says God is true. In other words, the chief Lutheran attribute of God is that he does not lie. That that If you wanted to, to summarize the the way that Luther looks at the scripture, that's it. God does not lie. That's a very interesting thing to think about how, how, um, how God doesn't, how God tells the truth all the time. And, and it comes, and we we're seeing it over and over. In fact, here in the study. So I, I, if someone can find that, uh, that'd be, that'd be great. Uh, so God does not lie. Even though, and this is very interesting, even though everything seems to proceed and happen in the opposite way, the world is furious, the flesh, the adversaries, the devil, together with the gates of hell, are raging. So remember, the world, the flesh, and the devil are the three great enemies fighting against God and his promise. They rage against the Lord and his promise and his people and against his word. But he spoke and it came to be. That's it. That's our confidence. That's our whole hope. God speaks and it's true. What God says is true. It happened. It's difficult for us to believe, for us believers to break through, to break through to the place where we trust that the Lord is telling the truth. For all the fury of Satan is devoted to this one thing, namely, that he may separate us from the word. And that we, exhausted and broken, either by the multitude or the long duration of tribulations, may forsake and reject the word. Can uh, Let's just not miss this. I don't have much to say to explain it or to be helpful, but the, the devil's one thing, his whole aim, is to separate us from the word. And how does he do it? By the multitude or the duration of our tribulations. Now, the devil has a handful of different strategies. He also has the, the luxury strategy. Remember, Jesus tells the parable of the, of the seed, and he talks about how some is in the rocks and the 
sun beats down on it and it withers. That's the persecution strategy being discussed here. There's also the weed strategy, the luxurious life strategy, where the devil just uh, dumps all these pleasures and we forsake the word. But this is the whole point, that we would forsake and reject the word. From the Garden of Eden until the moment that Jesus returns in glory with the trumpet of the archangels, this will be the devil's attack. And so this will be our own battle, both for ourselves and for our families and for our churches, for our for the, our, our friends, etc. So these two are joined. Look at this. Luther invents a word. The on, omnipotence of the word and the weakness or the inomnipotence, so to speak, of the human heart. It's, there's sort of a spiritual calculus here. It's like infinity times zero. And you end up with something in the middle. So you have the omnipotence of the word and the weakness or inomnipotence, the, the, the nothingness of the human heart, which must hold out, bear, and endure until the word is fulfilled. <laughs> Can you, this is great. Luther's inventing these words. To, so we have the omnipotence of the word. That's true. But we also have our own inomnipotence, our own nothingness. Marcia says, what are the three great enemies? We have it here. Uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. There's two different um, there's two different ways to to think about these enemies. So uh, on the one hand, so when we think about the enemies of the gospel, we have three related lists. The enemies are number one, the the devil. Number two is the world. And number three is our sinful flesh, the old Adam. Um, there's three enemies. Then we can also sometimes talk about three problems. The devil, uh, sin, and death. And you'll notice that these are similar lists, but a little bit different. And it's not like, uh, in, in fact, they're, you know, the, the devil is always bringing sin and death. The world is all these things so that there's an expansive there. But when we look over here at how the Lord gives us the gospel, the solution, we see also a list of three things. So salvation is in contrast to the devil. Forgiveness and life. And so you'll see these lists a lot of times. The Lord gives us the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. And that's forgiveness against sin, life against death, and salvation against the devil. Really, salvation against all three of these enemies. Salvation is the overcoming of these enemies. So uh, so we see that problems. So we see that uh, we'll see these lists in different places. It's especially... Um, if you're studying the large or the small catechism, it's very interesting to note that the list that Luther uses in the Lord's Prayer is here, the enemies. So all the time in the, in the large catechism, it's the enemies that we're praying against. In the sacraments, uh, so when he's talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper, he, he uses this language. And so it, I don't I don't know exactly why. It's the 
it's um, these are th this is almost like um these are over here are wills and these over here are are maybe results or actions or states or something like this so that there so so that there's a over here there's a understanding of person and over here it's a kind of a realm maybe if you could this is more like person and over here and this is maybe more like a place or a realm or a something like that so there those are the lists that you'll see oftentimes in there but this is the the three enemies and we'll see it uh i've been i've been drawing this chart for 17 years uh thinking about this when i teach the catechism because you got to remember show you're teaching the kids and they will always want to say sin death and the devil or the world flesh and the devil and you get them you get them mixed up but they're different they're related to one another but slightly different hope that's helpful okay uh so the flesh that's our sinful flesh adversaries that's the world right there and the devil uh bernard this is pretty cool bernard who luther mentioned earlier by the way saint bernard not the dog weird that they that bernard's parents named him after the dog <laughs> i might have gone the other way you never can know uh but here um here we said uh the, oh yeah bernard has this great point concerning the faith of the Virgin Mary, that when it had been announced to her by the angel that she would be the mother of Christ, that the strength of the faith of the Virgin who could believe the words of the angel was no less a miracle than the incarnation of the word itself. <laughs> so what? So this is an amazing sort of thing, is that, is that Bernard says, look, you want to see two miracles. Number one, that the God is going to be born a man from the womb of the virgin. That's a miracle. And that the virgin believes this according to the word of the angel. That's another miracle. And it's just as great. In fact, I think, you know what, if you, if you look through Luther's stuff to find ex nihilo, I remember, oh, back, maybe back at seminary, we were studying creation out of nothing creato ex nihilo creation the, how god created the world from nothing pre, that existed beforehand and i was looking for that in luther and you don't see he believes it it's there it's kind of but he never really leans into it he's not that interested in that he's much more interested in faith which is where he talks about how god creates faith out of nothing we've seen it already in the genesis study but it comes up over and over in the magnificat luther's commentary on the song of mary the how the humble the lord exalts and uh this understanding of exalting the humble of giving faith luther understands that that is the miracle of creation out of nothing that your faith and mine in christ is creatio ex nihilo it's great okay okay so uh bernard says that this the the faith of mary is just as big a miracle as the as the incarnation itself if you pastors can uh preach that here's your reference 
I don't, I don't have this patrologia. I wish they had the, you know, the Luther's works, they'll reference the Latin of the church fathers, not the English one. But if anyone has a, if anyone has an English reference to that Bernard text, that'd be cool to track it down. The greatest thing in the histories of the saints are the words which God speaks to the saints. We've had this 10 times now. Luther can't stop emphasizing it. We always, and, and, and understand it, especially in the context of the Middle Ages, where you had all of these legends and stories of all of the saints, and they were reading it all the time. You had the golden, it wasn't the golden bow, it was the golden legends or, ah, uh, What was that called? So he had all these storybooks of all the miracles that all the saints had done and all the martyrs and all this sort of stuff. And then that, and people love that. And so, and Luther says, look, no, you, you have to change your focus because the main thing is not the acts and words and deeds of the saints. It's the, it's the acts and most especially the words of God that he speaks. That's where the life is. That's where the hope is. That's where the promise is. The gospel is a promise, and the promise is a word. So we're always back to the word, the word, the word, the word, the word. Although their virtues and deeds should be praised, and God requires these too, yet they, like the feet, should be the, in the lowest place. But the head in life of the saints is the speaking of God itself. So the feet are the works. The head is the gospel, the word of God, the words that he speaks. That's the main thing. Whoops. Uh-oh. I wonder what I did there. So the head and life of the saints is the speaking uh, is the speaking of God it's, of God itself. Yet the fact, as it appears, that everything happens contrary to what God promises in his word, this takes place through the power of the devil and the weakness of our flesh, which has doubts about the per perpetuity of the truth of the promised word. Now, did I just delete all my highlighting? That's great. Well, we'll we're, now we're in new territory. So the fact is it appears so that everything happens, so that as we look at the world, and, and this is our Christian life. I mean, we just, uh, everything happens contrary to what God promises. So we have the promise of God, and then we have our life. And the devil and the weakness of our flesh put before us all these contrary things, which have doubt about the perpetuity and the truth of the promised word. So, so, so that we, we find ourselves uh, walking by faith and not by sight. This is God fighting, as Luther will say in other places, it's God fighting against his promises. So, I mean, we've seen it over and over here in the history of Jacob. But so here's, here's Jacob, and the Lord comes to him and gives him a word. What? What's the first word? The older, the older will serve the younger. That's that's the word that's governed this whole history. And so you have the word from God, and then you see the whole history of Jacob is that the younger is serving the older. It's now been seventy-seven years, and he's asleep on a rock in out in the sticks while Esau is back home sitting on the throne <laughs> ruling with his priest robes and the staff and everything 
And here Jacob has nothing. It's, it's empty. Nothing but the promise. And now the Lord comes again with another promise. He keeps coming with these promises. And, and But everything, if Jacob looks with his eyes, nothing. So he's he has to walk by faith, by his ear. And the Lord has arranged things this way. This is the point. And the devil now comes along and, and amps this thing up. Thus we shall see below that the violent attack is launched against these exceedingly powerful and rich promises, which says, I'll be with you, I'll guard you, etc. We, who do not live in the perils and difficulties like those with which Jacob was afflicted, read this carelessly and casually, and we think that it's easy and unimportant. But if we were in his place, this is a, a, a key for, I mean, this, as we let Luther be our teacher, how he is able to go to this place that that as it was with jacob so it is with us and this is where we learn we would feel otherwise for we who believe god when he promises and have been redeemed by the blood of christ see that among christians everything happens as though it were a matter of hopelessness and impossibility so that man together with the flesh and all wisdom and reason must simply be mortified and must depend on the word alone, as can be seen in the case of the saintly patriarchs. This is this is worth this is worth remembering. He who does not prefer the word to his own counsels, to his own life, farewell. <laughs> Let him become a heathen and an Epicurean, for he will never bear fruit either for himself or for others, since he wants to control impossible and incomprehensible matters with his wisdom and power let's not miss this word control here so so that so that luther is setting against so so that so let's just take a careful look at what luther's setting against it so b- before he set he set like two things against one another and that was law and gospel well let's let's draw it out here i'm doing a lot of blackboard work here today whoa let's try that again so that we have remember first we have the we have the word of god versus the acts of the saints and luther says this is the this is the really the gospel the promise versus the law what we are to do which is a, a beautiful contrast and now luther's going to set it here uh we have flesh and wisdom and reason so here we're going to have flesh, but also man's wisdom, earthly wisdom, the Bible calls it, and reason versus faith. Or hearing versus seeing. This is the, uh, the promise versus the deed. So that we have these two things running contrary all the way through, all the way through. And and there's a there's a temptation always for us to zoop, zoop, loop, to to run down here. To man together with fresh. And so and what and what does Luther say? What do you have to do with this? This flesh and wisdom and reason. It has to be mortified, put to death. And we must depend on the word alone. This is what this is Jacob's only hope. 
He who does not prefer the word to his own counsels, to his own life, farewell. He wants to control impossible and incomprehensible matters with his wisdom and counsel, so that the law is always always wants to control things, to manipulate things, to work things out. Now, we've already seen this contrast, is that sometimes we, we're handing things over to God. Other times, we're using our own wisdom. So, for example, um, uh, as, as, uh, as Esau wants to kill Jacob, uh, Rebekah comes and sends him away to save his life. And, and this is praiseworthy. So we're still doing good in these sorts of things as we trust in the promise of God. But this idea that everything has to be controlled and managed when it comes to divine things, it's, there's, it's not a chance. It's all over with him. We have to let the word of the Lord rule. All things will not flow according to our wish and rule. This one simply has to learn and conclude. You can't control things in this life. It's out of control. It, it, and maybe not all the time, maybe not moment by moment, but well, maybe by moment by moment, but that the Lord is working. Oh, so beautiful stuff. When we're absolved from sins, we have the word. <laughs> Look how Luther can't stop preaching. When we're absolved from sins, we have the word, which is founded and stands firm on the promise of God. But do we not experience the very opposite and undergo very great conflicts against the devil, death, hell, and our understanding? Although the pains of this, although this pains the flesh very much, yet in the meantime, God faithfully fulfills his promise for those who believe and wait in patience. There's a, uh, there's a, we are, a, we are waiters. This is the, the problem. Remember Isaiah 40 says, blessed are those who wait for the Lord. They will mount up on wings like eagles, run and not grow weary, walk and not grow faint. That So that faith and waiting are bound up to one another in the Lord's thing. And why? Why is faith waiting? Because God gives a promise. There's God builds in gaps. This is maybe a way to think about it. God builds in gaps between the giving of the promise and the fulfilling of the promise so that the promise first comes as a word and then later it comes as a thing. And we are living in the gap between the word and the thing, between the hearing and the seeing. That is an ear and that is an eye. I probably don't need to explain that to you. You can see, but we're in the middle here. So we're so that our faith is clinging to the word and our hope is looking forward to this thing, but we're in we're, but we're in the middle. This so that so that the Christian life is a life of waiting. And, th- and this is where all the temptation comes in. Like it's stated in the epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, though through faith the saints conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, received promises. How? Through faith. This consolation was especially necessary for the patriarch, Jacob, both during the exile and later when he was severely afflicted by Laban, yet he could not retain it without great conflict, even though God promised clearly and definitely, I will not leave you until I've done what I've spoken to you. Thus, the disciples completely forgot Christ's word and every consolation at the time of the passion. He'd preached to them at length. At that sermon is described in three chapters, John uh, 14, 15, 16, 17. 
I have spoken these things to you that when the hour comes, you will not be offended. But what benefit these remarkable words of comfort and exhortation produced appeared when he was crucified. Then they recalled nothing at all of which they had heard and seen Christ speaking and doing. This is placed before us in this way in order that we may learn what a great thing faith is, that it is not a cold and lazy quality as the papists dream. Now, this is a, one of the great debates of the Reformation is what is faith? The Catholic Church wanted to always say that faith basically is knowledge. They they included faith as one of the virtues, but it, it, it gets reduced to a, a historical knowledge of the thing. Luther understands this very differently. In fact, this language here is, is um, reminiscent of his introduction to the book of Romans, where which is quoted in the formula of Concord. Faith is a busy, active thing. It's more ready to do. It doesn't need to be asked. It's, it's, uh, it's, the, it's the difference between the duck floating on the water, that's the Catholic version, versus the, boiling, the fire that boils the water. That's how Luther understands faith. That, that clean, and, and it's a, faith is dealing with God, and this is a, faith is dealing with God as a person. who has made promises and who is dealing with me. I've had I've had a handful of conversations in the last few weeks that so I'm not so this is I'm still cooking this so it's not I'm going to serve it to you a bit raw here Um, and you can help me out but it's we 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 have this danger of thinking of god as a like a chemistry lab like if we get the just the right proportions of the chemicals then the reaction will be as we had planned so we have to put in faith and remove works and then salvation poof bubbles up in the in the test tube of the heart or something we we, we treat theology like a, a, a like a computer program. If I put in the right inputs, I get the I get the and I get the right outputs. And the, and we forget that God is well three persons. But when we're dealing with Jesus, we're dealing with a person. So one example is when we're talking about the Lord's Supper, and there's certain rubrics for the pastor. You take the lid off, and you indicate that. This, these are the elements that are being consecrated and so forth. And then you speak the words. But what happens, this is the question, what happens if you speak the wrong words? Like you're speaking over the bread and you say, this is my blood. Or you don't, don't take the lid off or something like that. It's like Jesus is sitting there and he says, well, you know, I was going to put my body there with the bread in to, to give to you to eat for the forgiveness of sins. But because you said the wrong word, I'm not gonna, you know, no. No, we're, Jesus deals with us as a person. It's the same sort of thing as when we think about um, our own faith or our own salvation. And we say, do, do I have enough faith or is my faith right? Or, or The Lord Jesus is, is, is real and is dealing with us 
according to that reality, just like he's dealing with Jacob. He sees him going into exile and he sees this desperation. And so he comes to him and he gives him this dream so that he could know that the promise is for him. That God is a person who's dealing with us as persons. This is, um, and and that's why, and that's what faith is. Faith is recognizing that the Lord is, it's it, that I am wrestling with the Lord. That's coming, but that doesn't come for a couple chapters. So we're like five years away from that. Okay, I don't know. If you guys can all help me sort that out. What I'm trying to say. I oh, I hope that. I hope that makes some sense. All right, uh, let's do a couple of uh, paragraphs of uh, of the dream here, and then we'll stop and, and talk a little bit more about it. So we're at verse 16. Uh, then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, Yahweh, uh, and I did not know it. And he was afraid. He says, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Now, it's interesting that Jacob is... It's like, hey, wait a minute, this place is special. And that's fine. This is the Lord will appear in places. And when the Lord appears in a place, we 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 say, yes, that's really great. Um this uh the uh, we we indicate that. That's why like why does why why do people um why do we bow at the altar? Because this is the place where the Lord puts his body and blood for us to eat and drink. But it's really not the place. It's that the Lord is there. That's what that's what sanctifies it. And the Lord is there because Jacob needs him to be there. Luther says, this appearance or vision did not come to him when he was awake, as most appearances to the saints are. Thus above, Genesis 18, the Lord appeared to Abraham and Mam- Mamre through angels. Uh, there are appearances to men who are awake. They are more definite than those that occur in dreams. Yet if these two do not have their counterparts or stirrings of the heart and faith, they are not true. But I cannot easily discuss dreams, for they are common among the godless and the godly. Thus in the history, so so Luther, and this is an interesting thing, uh, Luther just basically says, I, I don't like talking about dreams. Uh, th- there's a lot of nonsense that happens under the rubric of, I had a dream. The false prophets, Jeremiah 23 says, remember, uh, they have a dream of their own heart. But there are true dreams. For example, Jacob, the Lord gives Jacob dream. The Lord uh, gives Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, dreams that are interpreted and so forth. So thus in the, so we got to deal with it. Thus in the history of the heathen, there's descriptions of the dreams. Julius Caesar, Galba, who I don't know, Brutus, Cassius, others. The dreams they had were of such a nature that the truth of the thing itself followed. And not only did the outcome agree with the dream, but they also understood their dreams after they had awakened. Similar to these are the dreams of Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar that are recorded in the sacred histories. Uh, Exodus, Daniel. Therefore, we shall make the following distinction between dreams. Some are political or private, dreams pertaining to private or public affairs. These have their own type and their own forms. Accordingly, they must be referred to their own class. We shall not speak about these here. Some dreams concerning which Holy Scripture speaks pertain to the ecclesiastical or eternal matters, church stuff, ecclesiastical meaning of the church. These are true dreams, and it's necessary to speak about them here. Now, you can see Luther's reluctance, but here we go. 
Pharaoh's dream pertained to the years of sterility and fertility. Therefore, it is political and private. Nebuchadnezzar's dream was also physical, pertained to the kingdom. There are many dreams of this kind. God scatters them among the nations, just as he scatters many other gifts. According to the statement, Acts 14, 17, he did good and gave from heaven rains and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. In this way, he has scattered kingdoms and crowns among the godly and the godless alike. Yet one must observe in general concerning political dreams that they also have have to have an analogy with the present state of affairs and produce such an impression that the dreamer is moved and stirred. Now, this is, a, I really have to confess that I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure what Luther's talking about, but he says for a political dream to be a valid dream, it has to one be connected to the current state of affairs and two, the person who has the dream is affected by it. They are not melancholy dreams that have no bearing on reality. Concerning these, Ecclesiasticus, which is in the Apocrypha 34, 4 says, From an unclean thing, what will be made clean? And from something false, what will be true? Here all dreams are called unclean, and he who believes them is deceived. And there is also an extant saying of Cato, pay no attention to dreams. But in regard to dreams, there has always been a discussion about whether one should or should not believe them. False prophets are wont to praise their dreams. Um, there's a long section in, oh, where was this? I was reading this. There's a long section in, in Chemnitz where when he's tracing the roots of the doctrine of purgatory, he goes back to the dreams that St. Augustine had. And uh, that's uh, tricky. Um, I mean, Chemnitz is saying you want to find the root of all these false doctrines. It's in the dreams that the that people were given, where all these ghosts appeared to them. Luther also will track how Zwingli received his doctrine of the Lord's Supper in a dream when the Lord came to him and said, uh, the, the body and blood is not really there in the altar. That happened in a dream. So all this dream stuff. False prophets are wont to praise their dreams. Accordingly, God often forbids us to believe them. For if a dream does not have its analogy, he who believes it is defiled, and the dream is deceptive. Now, I think this, I, I and again, you guys can help me on this, but I think this analogy here is, it, it has to have a parallel in the scripture. If we're looking at a dream and it's not, and we can't point to a scripture that gives us the same truth, that analogy, then we, or if it doesn't fit in with what the Lord teaches in the scripture, then we have to receive it as a deception and to believe it is defiled. Nevertheless, it is certain that dreams that are true have a congruous meaning, have congruous meanings, and are also sent to secular men. Concerning these dreams, men have handed down definite rules. Uh, so here's the, I don't know who's, who, who Luther is referring to, but this is, uh, oh, there's another Luther quote. In the first place, they must not be vague and vanishing images or thoughts, but must have an analogy with the present state of affairs. In the second place, they should move the heart in such a way that the dreamer is troubled and disturbed. Thus, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, to you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be hereafter. He points out that the king was anxious and concerned in his dreams about the kingdom and the state of affairs after his time. Therefore, there must be some anxiety 
And then there must be a very great agitation and a very strong impression by which the dreamers moved and influences. But I'm not discussing this. Luther keeps trying to not discuss this. <laughs> we must consider the dreams of which Moses is speaking, since at other times he condemns dreams. Um, Deuteronomy 13, see also Jeremiah 23. For this is what the Lord says to Aaron, if there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He's entrusted with all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth. This means if anyone presides over the government of church affairs, I shall speak to him by word of mouth or through vision or through a dream. But he says that he is speaking to Moses in a far different and loftier manner, not through the word of a preacher or a disciple of the prophets, not, not through a vision or images or through a dream. No, he says, I speak to him mouth to mouth. Yet here God confirms his revelations first a verbal revelation, then a vision, like the one described in Isaiah 6, and in the third place, a dream. These three types God approves, but in the prophets, that is, in those who discard, discharge an ecclesiastical office, and especially if the dream have a bearing on the word and agree with the word. So this is our question. If you have a dream, the main point is, does it agree with the word? Does it agitate you, and does it agree with the word? Here one must observe whether they influence the dreamer and whether they have their counterpart and do not conflict with the word. And there is just as much validity as if the word itself were presented either through a vision or through the voice of those who are awake. Thus Jacob has the word and something that's certain, for he received the blessing and was called by God to a patriarchate, to be the patriarch. He was appointed bishop, lord, governor of the church in his house by the word of God through the blessing of his father Isaac. When this foundation has been laid, one should look at the dream to see whether it agrees with the foundation or not. So the dream must be tested. One must see whether the stubble or gold is built on the foundation, as Paul says, 1 Corinthians 3. This is helpful for me, by the way, because one of the things that's happening now a lot is that the reports of folks who are coming out of Islam and becoming Christians are almost all connected to dreams. But those dreams are sending, especially the young men uh, and women, but mostly the young men, to a Christian pastor who can preach the gospel to them. Very interesting. In the same way, the fo uh, a foundation has been laid. So, And here's the main point, that Luther says that you cannot make the dream the foundation. The foundation must be the word of God. It must be. Uh, discharging political duty, although the heathen do not have the word, they have the actual thing and the calling by which they have been appointed to govern and rule and warn peace. If a dream now comes to a heathen commander or leader, a dream which has its counterpart agrees with the thing itself and with his thoughts, it should by no means be regarded as worthless. Accordingly, one should regard Jacob's dream much more as true and meaningful. Why? Because it has been preceded by his appointment and a manifest divine calling to the priesthood and the primogenitor and the true foundation of the promise. But he is troubled about the future completion of the whole structure above the foundation, since many misfortunes are present themselves, so that it appears that the whole building itself will fall into ruins. Here his heart begins to waver. He has doubts about the success and the fulfillment of the promise. Therefore, God is present and sends a very clear dream, which agrees with the fact and is in harmony with the foundation. 
So the dream comes as a confirming thing. In addition, he's agitated. The text says he was afraid. He was uh, impelled to reverence when he saw that the dream was in agreement with the foundation. These are true and meaningful dreams, which like the word itself never depart without accomplishing the purpose. Okay, I'm looking at the clock. I think this is going to be a good place to because I got some comments there uh, to address too as well. So we'll wrap up the recording here and then uh, jump in for some conversation and we'll start here next week. We'll, we should be, uh, next week is last week in Advent, getting ready for Christmas, but we should be good to go next week. We'll take the week after Christmas off. Uh, maybe two, I think we'll probably take two weeks off, uh, but then we'll be, but we'll be back here next week as well. So uh, let's say a prayer and we'll, then we'll turn off the, uh, turn off all the restrictions here. Oh Lord, we give you thanks that you have spoken to us by your word and that that word sets us free, uh, gives us promises to cling to in the midst of all of this troubled life. We pray that you would strengthen and keep us in this true faith until you bring us to life eternal through Christ our Lord. Amen. The Lord bless and keep you. The Lord watch over you and bless you, give you his peace and comfort. 